This week in the news, we're all aware in the Middle East by now, if we're paying any attention to the news at all, that uh, Syria was in the news because we decided in conjunction with a couple of other nations to send a few packages their way, and um, that was that. Something else was in the news. I read about it in two different articles, and I, and I don't even know if you put it in the news as much as articles. This thing called Holocaust Remembrance Day. What rock have I been under? I cannot remember anything being called this. Have you guys heard of this? Okay, you have. So I'm not the only one. Okay. Uh, But two different articles pointing it out that that's what took place this past week. And um, it was just interesting that, you know, Israel and its history was was put into the news in this way. Now, from our modern perspective, and we have something like that, and if you go to Washington, D.C., I, I just encourage you, go to the Holocaust Museum. You need to see it. It is, it is a powerful thing to see. But because we tend to think of Israel from its more recent history, we may very well sim- remember them simply as the victims of one of mankind's greatest evils. In fact, what happened to them has become, hasn't it? It has become the measure or the standard of how we define that which is evil. Here's what I mean by that. (laughs) If, out on a... public stage, political platform, if we want to point out that somebody is evil, they're as bad as Hitler. Exactly. That's the standard. Even though Joseph Stalin murdered far, far, far more, multiplied times more people of his own people, Hitler is the standard in what he did in wiping out two-thirds of Europe's Jews. Came across an article that uh, indicating something about Madeleine Albright apparently has a book entitled Fascism, A Warning. And uh, Tuesday on CBS This Morning, promoting her book, she argued that alongside leaders in countries like Hungary, Turkey, and the Philippines, Trump is, and now a quote, turning to the same tactics used by fascists like Hitler and Mussolini nearly a year ago. He's the standard of how you measure Trump. He's as bad as Hitler. That's our perspective of modern Israel. They're the ones who went through the Holocaust. And it was so bad that we now measure evil by the guy who inflicted it upon them. But when we understand our Bibles, friends, we know that Israel is not simply a nation who is the victim of history having gone terribly wrong. In fact, Israel is a nation which has had some magnificent high points in its history. In fact, Israel as a nation is so significant in its place in history that God's redemptive work runs right through the center of the nation. And I hope you'll understand it by the time we're done. And that's what sets them apart from all the other nations. And it it goes far beyond them being simply those who are of 
uh, victim status. Genesis chapter 3, you will recall, man fell in the garden. God promised that there would be one kind who would come of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. The first promise of a coming Messiah, Genesis chapter 3, happened immediately after Adam and Eve sinned. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 12, God has identified a man by the name of Abraham. He said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a particular land, and you're going to be a blessing. In fact, the blessing upon you is going to be so great that through you, all the nations will be blessed. And in that promise that all the nations would be blessed, what God just affirmed is that through Abraham, somehow the one promised in Genesis 3 is going to be one of his offspring. So by the time you get to Exodus chapter 3, you find out God has raised up a mighty nation there. They've been, uh, they've been nurtured, if you will. Their gestation took place down in Egypt to where there's a couple of millions of them now, and they're big enough to actually be a nation. And God raises up a guy by the name of Moses to now deliver them out of the enslavement that has come their way. When you get to Exodus 19, we looked at this in our series, God calls these people his special, peculiar treasure. He has identified them specifically as a nation, as his people. And then you get to Exodus chapter 25, and you find out God says, Hey, here's what I'd like you to do. Build a tabernacle. It's a moving tent-like structure. The center of it is a box with a golden cover on it and angels on top of that. And he says, That's where you're going to put the blood of the mercy seat because you are going to offer sacrifices. And year by year, I'm going to cover your sin when you offer that blood on the mercy seat. And I will meet you right there. And it is the holiest thing in all of Israel. And God manifests himself to them. Because he said, make a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. And that's where I will meet you. And he had physical manifestations of his presence. With a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. Whereby they knew that the creator God of the universe is here and he is with us. And all the other nations could see it from a distance. They could not get in there to see it personally, but they saw what was happening. And then under Joshua, this nation which was birthed out of Egypt now moves into the land that God had promised to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis. And so we have a nation, we have them in their land, and we noted in that how God passionately was looking to communicate to them his love for them in a unique way, that they were the people that he had chosen. And now through Joshua, they settled the land that he has given them. You recall by the time we got to the book of Judges, they were beginning to unravel a little bit. It was not going well for them. But God again brings this promise as we got to the little book of Ruth and the kinsman redeemer who was a picture of the coming of Christ, who would be one like us and would pay the price to redeem us. What a magnificent hope that is in that little book of Ruth. And so the times of the judges continued until we came to 1 Samuel chapter 8 a week ago, and uh, we saw that they had asked for a king. You know, Samuel, this judges thing isn't working as well. We want a king like the rest of the nations. He was kind of put off by that. And he came before the Lord, and the Lord said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Make him a king, but remind them of this. Here's what a king will do. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. 
And he just lists for them all the ways in which the king would take from them. And said, okay, good, we'll take the king, thank you. So he made a king. First king was Saul. Saul was set aside because of his because of his rebellion to the Lord, and he did not walk in obedience to the Lord. And then David, identified as a man after God's own heart, was brought in as the second king now. And as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we come at a time in Israel's history when uh, they actually have a fair degree of peace. Things have settled down, and they are not being afflicted by mighty kingdoms around them. And because he's not having to fight a lot of battles, David is the king. He's living in Jerusalem. He's got some nice houses for himself. He looks around and he says, you know, I live in a pretty good place. And the ark, it still exists in this tent thing. And I would like to make a permanent housing, something that honors God now and forever. A permanent structure. So here's, here's how this goes down. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in the house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, the prophet's role at this point has become significant in being the voice, uh, the mouthpiece for God, as well as not just to reveal things to the king that God wanted them to know, but when necessary, to call the king out. The prophet would call the king out. Okay. Then Nathan, uh, let's see, the king said to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And Nathan gives a rather quick response uh, that just seemed right to him in his, in his flesh. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? And God says, Hold on here, Nathan. We're not going to have David build that. I'm going to drop all the way down to verse 10, uh, if we can. Moreover... I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. So God says, I'm going to take care of my people since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. God wanted to make, or David wanted to make a house for the ark of God, a permanent structure rather than this curtained structure. God says ultimately, nope, not going to have you do that. But here's what I'm going to do in response. I'm going to make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, now this is our memory verse, this is what you have on that little card, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all the visions, so Nathan spoke to David. 
So David wants to make this house. God says, not so fast. But here's what is going to happen. Your son will make that permanent structure of a house. But beyond that, I'm going to make you a house. Now he's speaking metaphorically. Because your son and your son's son and all of your son's sons will continue to reign upon this throne of yours until Messiah comes. The authority of the throne will never leave your family line, David. An amazing promise that he made to him, and that's the house. He's actually saying David's going to have a dynasty, and it will last. Now, God's, this, this was God's promise to David individually. David wanted to build the house. God said, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to create this dynasty. And David understood clearly that this was an amazing blessing that God had poured on him. For us, it may be just oh, some stuff we've read in the Bible before, but David grasps how incredible what God has just promised is. So the account goes on. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that you have heard, uh, that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people? To make for himself a name. And this is why I said the whole redemptive work of God comes right through the nation. And to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land. Before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. The nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you Lord have become their God. Now, O Lord Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart, to pray this prayer to you. And I'm going to stop there, Jeff. What a magnificent promise. And David gets it. Who am I that you would do this to me? Who am I that you would, that you would give this rich blessing to me? And friends, it is it here and for the next few chapters where you're going to see the next little bit of history in Israel that if you follow it through, you'll see... It's at its high point. It's an amazing time. An amazing personal blessing. And David grasped it. So this was God's promise to David individually. But friends, when we think of that verse where God promises to him, 
our verse that we're memorizing. Every time you look at this little card, now the, number, the first verse, verse 8, is just to give you a context, to remind you this was spoken by Nathan to David. The memory verse is verse 16. And your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Every time you read that and work with that this week, and if you keep it on the dashboard in your car, or the mirror in your bathroom, or on your kitchen table, and you look at that, I'd like you to think in this term, because there's way more there than simply a promise to David. And Jeff, have you got that first picture? Here's what I'd like you to, to envision in your mind, okay? A sign. Now, this is a sign on a brick wall, and it's actually more red than comes through here. But when you read that verse about God saying, I will build a house for you, what I would like you to see is a flashing neon sign that points up to Christ that says, more this way, more this way, more this way. Because that, that verse is not simply about David getting a blessing. That verse is a declaration that Christ is going to come through his lineage. That Christ himself, promised in Genesis 3, is going to be a descendant of David. Through Christ, through Christ... David's dynasty will be established. So picture that. When you look at that verse, picture this sign flashing more this way. There's more to this than what meets the eye. This is going to unfold over the course of more than the next thousand years. But let's, let's look at what the scriptures say a thousand years later about this. And here's where what I'm trying to convince you of and help you grasp is how significant this promise is to David individually and then more so. Matthew chapter 1, this won't come up on the screen. Just listen to this. You're familiar with it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew begins his gospel, starts with Jesus, looks back to David, goes back to Abraham. Then he gives all of the genealogy in between. Gets to verse 17, and now he comes the other, the other way. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. But did you see it? doesn't matter which way you're going. You've got Abraham, David, Christ. They're connected Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Triumphal entry. Matt, Matthew records for us at the triumphal entry of Jesus, and we just recognized it a couple weeks ago. One of the things the crowd yelled out was what? Hosanna to the son of David. Now, they, what were they expecting? What were they looking for? Remember when Pilate asked him if he was a king? Are you a king then? Because they were looking for a king who would throw off the reign of Rome over them. Hosanna, save now. Son of David. Why son of David? Because they knew the coming king, the coming Messiah, the coming deliverer had to be a descendant of David. And they were declaring this truth. You have the right lineage. You have done the works of Messiah. Clearly now it is time for you as you enter into Jerusalem to victoriously take your throne. That's what they were looking for. Acts chapter 2. You realize by Acts chapter 2? 
the events of Holy Week have played themselves out. By Acts chapter 2, Christ, within a matter of days after that triumphal entry, he has been put on trial repeatedly, illegally, and he was crucified. And that's why the guys on the road to Emmaus were confused. All right, because you recall on Easter Sunday, we looked at that and said, uh, we thought he was going to be the one. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, takes place about five weeks, no, no, it's about seven weeks later. It's the day of Pentecost. And what we have happening here is Jesus, as he had promised, sends the Holy Spirit upon this little gathering of believers that have trusted him. And he's about to explode the world with these guys. Okay? They are going to move out from here, and the world is going to be forever changed from this little band of his followers because of the power of the Holy Spirit that comes on them. And when it does, you've got to understand, people are gathered in Jerusalem from many different nations. They're gathered there for the day of Pentecost. They don't all speak the, the same language because they've come from these different nations. And yet, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, this message that comes upon the Christ followers is being proclaimed and people are understanding it in their own languages and they're like, now how can this be? They're confused by it. So Peter rises up to explain, well, here's what's going on. And it's a long sermon that Peter gives. By the way, the, you know, the, focus of that, the focus of that sermon is, Christ, who you crucified, God's raised up. Because from here on, they're just going to preach the resurrection. That's worth our understanding. It's just part of the history here. Acts chapter 2, jumping into the middle... And describing what they did, and God's sovereign hand in it says, Him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, we celebrate that every Easter Sunday morning. We just kind of go with that and accept that. But notice what Peter continues to say. For David says, concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. And now Peter is quoting Psalm 16. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. This is David now who foresaw this. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One... To see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now David is saying this, is writing this. And, and then Peter kind of says, now hang on. Next verse says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Who said here that he wouldn't be held in corruption. Death couldn't keep him. That's what he said. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He says, guys, David said this about the Holy One not seeing corruption, but by now, there's nothing but bones left there. And he has seen corruption, dead and buried. Therefore, Peter goes on, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, his descendants, right? Of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, 
he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Do you catch that? He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Remember David's dynasty? His offspring, his son of his sons of the sons of the sons, would be the only ones who would have authority to sit upon his throne. And he said, when David prophesied this about his soul not seeing corruption, he was prophesying about Christ, who God has raised up. He foreseeing this, spoke concerning of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And then skipping one verse, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What I'm trying to to make clear to us, friends, and we are barely scratching the surface of the scriptures that would make this same statement. What I'm trying to help us to understand that although in their history, back around that time when David lived at a time when it went from 1000 BC into the 900 BCs, at that time he's looked back to still to this day as Israel's greatest king. But he was merely a type of Christ who will come as the eternal king. And that's what the scriptures teach, and that's what Peter is proclaiming. Which is why when we looked at Luke 24, 26 on Easter Sunday morning, when Jesus, remember, he was hidden from those disciples and they were trying to, you know, scratching their heads, walking along the road to Emmaus. And they're kind of like, we're not sure what to make of this. We thought he was going to be the one to deliver us. And then he says to them, oh, uh, oh, ignorant ones and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have said. Ought not Christ to have first suffered and then entered into his glory? That entering into his glory is when he entered, as Hebrews tells us, he sat down at the right hand of the Father after carrying out his role as the high priest. He gave himself, you know, uh, in his priestly role. He was this Passover lamb. He died on that day on Good Friday. He paid that perfect sacrifice for us. But when he rose, he rose to sit at the right hand of the Father And in Hebrews chapter 1, it even references him saying that until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, you're here in a place of authority, but God is still working out redemptive history. And the day is coming when Jesus Christ will return, but he doesn't return the second time as the suffering servant. He returns, as we see in Revelation chapter 19, which is, for me, perhaps one of the most amazing passages in Scripture, and I just love it, and I know I refer to it a lot because it clarifies everything. Revelation 19, and picking it up in verse 11, this is what John had revealed to him. Revelation 19, Now I saw, I as John, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is the ultimate king. Remember the people asked for a king that would go out to war for them. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. 
Clearly, if you understand John's writing in John 1, 1, you know when he's referencing the Word of God, he's referencing the incarnate Christ. So here we are. It's back to Jesus again, okay? And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on the white horse. Now out of, the, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that, w- that, w- that with he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, this is why I say that when you look at this thing about David, there's way more to this than simply, hey, David's going to have a dynasty built after him. The dynasty is going to result in the coming of Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when God, at God's appointed time, he will get up from being seated at God's right hand, and it's time to make his enemies his footstool. And he will mount a white horse, followed by others with white horses, and come out of the sky. And he's going to set the world straight. It's going to happen Right there in Israel. Now, let's wrap it up, friends. God's promise to David individually, the promise of an eternal house, metaphorically speaking for a dynasty, was the promise that the prophet, priest, king, Messiah would be his descendant and reign for eternity. What a magnificent promise. That's God's promise to David individually. But what we need to recognize for ourselves here today, friends, is that it is the only hope of mankind universally. There is no other hope for mankind other than this one, King Jesus, who first came as the suffering servant, that we might be, as Boaz, redeemed back to God, and then he will come as the conquering king, king of kings and lord of lords, to put down the evil that has been perpetrated ultimately by the evil one. Was at a district conference the last, um, uh, last couple of days, went from Thursday to Saturday. Miles and Mike caught up with me on Friday, had a great time with them. They left the hospital, or the hospital, the hotel room on Saturday morning, going out to my car, and right next to my car, I came across a vehicle towing a trailer. And that trailer, Jeff, could you show us that now? That trailer, could you guys see that? Can you see the wheels down here and the trailer hitch? And it's hard to tell exactly what it was because it was a black trailer, completely covered, and it just had this on it. Endless rain. And although the logo is kind of cool, I don't know exactly what's in it. I read it and said, I don't think so. That's a lie. Because there is but one, but one who will have an endless reign. And that is Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, who as David was Israel's great king, he was typifying Christ, Israel's ultimate king, king of kings and lord of lords. And his reign will have no end, regardless of what any human being thinks in his own arrogance. 
in power and strength. Endless reign belongs to Jesus Christ alone. So, with that in mind, here's what we want to say. The old story of David, God will build a house for him, is this future story of the King of Kings when Christ comes as the ultimate eternal king who will never relinquish his authority. The old story of David is the future story of the King of Kings is the, is the present story of God redeeming a people to himself. You see, because as we said at the outset, God's redemptive history went right through the nation of Israel and it's going to include the nation of Israel again, but it is ongoing right now. It never stops. From Genesis 3 on, it never stops that God is redeeming people to himself. And that leads us with a real simple question. Am I on board? Am I on board? Do I understand Christ alone is the, the hope of mankind? He alone is what Scripture is pointing to. You know, people will say sometimes you can make Scripture say whatever you want. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. And I'll agree with that to a degree. But if you just want to get honest and say, well, then let's not try and make it say anything. Let's just read it. Let's just read it and see what it's saying. There's no question. There's no question that as you follow it through, what it's saying is there's but one hope. And the prophet, priest, king, Messiah, Jesus Christ, who the scriptures is speaking about from Genesis chapter 3 to the very end of Revelation. The question is, if he alone is our hope, am I on board? Next thing we ought to be aware of, friends, is Israel is going to be the convergence when the king returns. Am I watching? Jesus told us to watch and pray. Syria was in the news because they got bombed. One article I read said, and I, I thought it was amazing, but I hadn't even read they'd gotten bombed. This was the first article I saw, and it indicated that Russia and Syria were now, uh, Iran and Russia were now threatening Israel for their part. Now, you do understand, according to Ezekiel 38, 39, (laughs) they are going to be the ones who are coming down from the north, and they are the ones going to try and obliterate Israel. Huh, are we watching, friends? Because the stage is being set for the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we're a generation who are just seeing it unfold in front of us. And another thing, we get to have a part in all of this. As redemptive work is being worked out, the question that leads us is, am I engaging? Am I playing the part that God has me to play? We talked about being the body of Christ here. And the reason I put such emphasis on that is Ephesians 4 says that we are put in proximity to each other, that we might be a blessing and care for one another and encourage one another and build one another up. We need one another. Am I engaging in a place in the body of Christ where I'm effectively knowing some people and they know me and and we're uplifting one another and we're caring for one another or, or maybe I'm in a place of service in a place like Awana where it's tough to serve in Awana. It'll sap the energy right out of you, but there are kids who aren't going to hear the gospel this year other than at Awana. 
And are we willing to serve? Is that the place where God would call us? I don't know. There's a number of other places. But these are just some thoughts that this idea that God made David a house, the house was Christ would be his offspring ultimately. And that as David was king, Christ would reign as king of kings and lord of lords. There's nowhere else to look. And with that, here's a thought. If you're getting this whole theme of Christ as king, as Christ is the only one, then could we say he's like the North Star in this way? The old-time navigators, they oriented themselves to the North Star. Once they could get oriented to him, they knew how to move in the right direction. Didn't change, didn't move. My friends, there's many things that we might decide we're going to orient ourselves to. Maybe somebody's blog that we particularly think is really insightful, so we're going to follow their blog. Maybe the newest trend in the game decks that are out there. Maybe that's what we're going, oh man, I've got to have this new game, and that's what I'm orienting to for right now. Maybe somebody comes with a, a new teaching, because Scripture cautions us against a, a time when people come and they'll, they'll throw away sound doctrine, heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and we're looking for something new. I've heard this Jesus thing before. Give me something new. Friends, anything new other than Jesus disorients you. It will not set you on a path that will ultimately deliver you. The entire scriptures, the entire scope of the scriptures, imagine that, written over the course of 1,500 years by 40-plus authors, three different languages, three different continents, and they all wrote as God revealed to them, and the entire scope of the scriptures point to Jesus Christ alone is our hope. God's promise to David individually is the only hope of mankind universally. And he calls us, come to me, get engaged, keep your eyes open because I'm coming back. And understand that I alone will move you in the right direction. And you always orient your life to me. Father, thank you. The magnificence of Jesus Christ... Father, we have considered him at other times in in his high priestly role. We're aware the scriptures speak of him as a prophet, but today, Father, we focused on him as king. The king. King of kings and Lord of lords. The one promised as the descendant of David. So magnificent, Lord. Nothing, nothing will compare to the glory revealed in him. Will we even be able to look as he returns on the white horse, Father? Will we even be able to, to see that glory with, without our eyes being burned? Oh, Father, I pray that you will refresh in each one of us the magnificence of who King Jesus is. And we today will orient our lives to him, enthroning him in our lives personally, I ask in his precious name. Amen. Amen.